This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Yes, likewise. We are going to be continuing with our expert investor series and today we are lucky enough to be joined by Balaji Gopal, who is head of product strategy at Vanguard Australia. So, Balaji, thank you so much for your time today and joining the show. Oh, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Balaji, before we jump into the the meat of the episode, we usually start these interviews with a bit of a game called overrated or underrated. And a way that it works is we'll shoot through a couple of different asset classes and we'll get your opinion on whether or not you think they're overrated or underrated from a sort of current investing point of view and perhaps why you think that might be the case. You want to play? Sure. So I'll kick off. Overrated or underrated Australian property? Uh, At rated. At rated. <laughs> and why is that? Well, it really depends on the perspective you have and and the time frame that you're seeking to invest by. So on that basis, anything can be overrated or underrated. So that's kind of going to be the gist of my answers to most of the asset class queries. You know, different asset classes are going through various stages of upheaval at various times. So any view of overrated or underrated is really a point in time estimate of that. I think you may have just answered every one of the questions in one there, Balaji. <laughs> Unintentionally. For the sake of the game, we'll, uh, we'll ask you the next one and we'll see what, what your answer is. So overrated or underrated, the S&P 500 index? I think in the very long term, it's a great opportunity to continue to invest in in equity. So, um, you know, there's always going to be up and down movements in, in the stock market. So, my answer is very similar to the previous one. I don't want to profess a view that comes across as informed as to me making a call on where the market is at. And, and for a number of topics we're likely to cover today, I think hopefully this will come out as a theme. So, we, we want to steer away from forming shorter term views on on markets or asset classes and focus on the long-term picture. That's a fair call. So I guess we'll finish this one then with not an asset class, but someone that is certainly making their opinions known in the in the passive ETF industry at the moment. Overrated or underrated the comments by Michael Burry? Uh, overrated. <laughs> nice. So there's a couple of questions that have come in from listeners that we'll address around that topic a bit later on. And uh, just to shout out to listeners as well that we have incorporated a lot of the questions that have come through our social channels that they want us to ask you, Balaji. So we'll let you know when they come up. Sure. So Ren, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. So I think, Balaji, it's great that we have you on today because 
ETFs are a real hot topic in our equity mates community. I think the vast majority of questions that we get in one way or another relate to ETFs. So I think it's a, it's a really opportune time for us to ask you some of those questions. But if we start at the very basics, for people who are new to investing and may not be so familiar with Vanguard, can you just tell us to start with who is Vanguard? Sure. So Vanguard is one of the largest investment and asset management companies in the world. It was set up in um, the year 1975 by founder Jack Bogle. So um, Vanguard is known around the world for its indexing capabilities, i.e. passive, um, running passive portfolios. We right now run roughly around $8 trillion Australian dollars worth of assets across not just index portfolios, but across index active strategies as well as ETFs. So Vanguard also has something different to the rest of the industry in that it's well, we, we, we have a mutual structure, which is, which, which is worth spending some time understanding if you want me to um, elaborate on that. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if you look at most companies, most companies are set up with, um, with a number of shareholders where the company in the natural course of its business runs activities and then generates investment profits, which then get attributable to some of these shareholders. The Vanguard mutual structure is slightly different in that it turns this on its head and where for, from a Vanguard standpoint, all of Vanguard's funds own the company. And by extension of that, all of Vanguard's investors own Vanguard. Now, what this means is we don't have any external shareholders. So any investor into the Vanguard funds is essentially an owner in the company. And the way we do this is we create funds, um, whether they be um, passive funds, index funds, active funds or ETFs, our investors invest into them. We build scale and then using the benefits of scale and efficiency, we pass back the returns to investors through reducing fees. Now, we began this trend about 40 years ago and we've been able to, because of this predominantly of this mutual structure, been able to really, A, always have an unwavering commitment to clients, i.e., never have a conflict between a shareholder and, and a fund holder. But, in, and, but also, we've been able to consistently, because of this model, been able to drive the cost of investing down in every market that we've operated in. And predominant amount of that has emanated from the US because of the scale of assets we have there. Yeah, very interesting. I think, um, yeah, fees is something that we'll touch on a little later on, something, something that's very important to our community. So before we get into that, Let's just take a step back, Balaji, and, and talk a bit about your personal background so we can get a bit of a, an idea of who you are. Are you able to tell us about your first investment that you made and, and what that experience was like? Sure. I grew up in, in India before coming to Australia, but my first investment was when I was a teenager and I really do um get into stocks predominantly for the reason that you saw a lot of people making a lot of wealth in um, in stocks. I invested in a company called Reliance Industries in um, in India, which was you know one of the bluest of blue chip stocks. And it was a good lesson because I invested the money. It made a, I invested in that stock through a traditional broker, paid paid a lot in commissions. The stock did well for some time, and I thought that was great. And then I sold it, and I thought it was pretty good because um, I thought I was an 
I must have been, I must be a very good investor. <laughs> what ended up happening was that, <laughs> that stock's um, gone gone on and you know uh, delivered gains in um, by a factor of you know about ten or twenty. So great lesson there where you know it was I got caught up in the short term noise of seeking some short term gains and lost sight of the bigger picture. And um, if if I still held that stock, you know, it would have been a different story. But right now, it's just that, just a, just a good story that uh, hopefully I've learned some lessons from. So then following on from that, what's your personal sort of investing philosophy that guides you with decisions today? So my personal investment philosophy is very attuned to, without trying to match it to what Vanguard says, is very aligned because it, it always comes down to, if you look at the some of the decisions, investing decisions you've made and some things that have worked and some things that haven't worked, in many cases, it all comes down to, you know, why you are trying to invest into something and, you know, how do you relate it back to what you're seeking to do? I know many of your listeners talk about, and, and, and I know you guys talk about a lot about early retirement and having the option to be able to um, not be bogged down in a, in a job and, and have some assets that you can rely on to, to fund your future lifestyle or, or whatever, whatever it is that you might be seeking to do. Our, my philosophy has always been about, you know, be very, very clear on what those goals are and then approach any sort of investment strategy with a clear understanding of A, how is that strategy going to get you there? And also be very cognizant of the risks of any of that, any of that investment strategy impeding your goal. Because, you know, as sound as an investment product or, or a strategy might be, if it's going to take on a significant amount of risk that could impede your goal, I think that's something that people need to be concerned about. And that's been my philosophy. So, Balaji, from, the, uh, from that first investment in uh, Reliance Industries, I imagine there's been quite a journey to where you are at as head of product strategy at Vanguard Australia today. Can you tell us a bit about that investment journey and any of the key highlights along the way? Yeah, I think after that first experience and after moving to Australia, my investment journeys continued by, um, you know, before I bought a property, you know, I was always looking at, you know, how do I invest my money? And an option at the time was, you know, you could keep it in a bank account or you could invest into something to grow that asset pool to a point where you could use that as a deposit for a house. So that that worked well. And what I did was I essentially divvied up some of what I had and put some of my money in, in, a, in a bank account, in a high interest saving account. And with the rest, I invested it in um, some blue chip stocks, which would have given me exposure to the market, some upside return, but didn't exactly put me in a position where I uh, where it would um, essentially diminish my investment holdings, which would then impede my ability to eventually buy a house, which was my goal at the time. After that, you know, you buy a house and then your your needs as, a, as, a, as an individual and as a family grow. And then that drives some of your investment thinking as well. So it's it's been a combination of investing in stocks, investing in property, and then, you know, continuing that journey on. But it's been very much focused on trying to, you know, gradually build assets, but also try and build a number of things that were in my control around, you know, becoming more educated around investments, becoming more educated to ensure that my career continues to thrive to be able to support some of my goals. So again, it comes back to what me and my family wanted to achieve and then and trying to do everything in my control to try and get us there. 
So ETFs and, and passive investing has obviously been booming over the last sort of 10 years or so, as has the competition in the space. You know, we've got some competitors here in Australia who are pumping out, you know, new ETFs pretty regularly. As uh, head of product strategy, what, what is one of the most challenging aspects of, of your current role? The overarching um, challenge in the current role is, is mainly around educating investors. I think a number of providers and uh, a number of players in the market, not, notably your, your podcast as well, tries to educate investors. But I think where there's a big gap is in, in people. There's, there's, a, there's a huge proliferation of um, products in the marketplace. You still see investors come in and invest into products that they don't understand. They, it's not aligned to their goals. And, um, you know, sometimes people invest in certain things or certain stocks just um, from a short-term perspective. And that pr- pretty much is is a challenge from an investor perspective. We're also seeing from an industry standpoint, with the growth in indexing, a number of you know traditional active managers who have seen a, a lot of outflows go into indexing assets now are trying to find ways to get into the indexing game. And uh, one of the ways they're trying to do that is by getting a bit creative in, in, in your product design and trying to put very narrow or niche or esoteric exposures out there, which may or may not be um, the right thing to do by investors. So, you know, the, the big issue there is a lack of investor education coupled with some very niche strategies could be a recipe for disaster. So at Vanguard, we're continually, and me personally, continually trying to look at what role we can play in helping educate the market and try and get people along on thinking through things before actually investing. So picking up on that, I guess uh, you've got a audience here that are listening to you. A lot of people are early in their investing journey. If there was a key message or a couple of key messages that you really hoped would get out there in terms of educating the investing public, what, what would that be? Yeah, so it's one of a a philosophy rather than a a product, and we can talk about products in a second. But to your listeners, I I would suggest everybody to look at Vanguard's principles of investment success, which goes down to four essential principles. One is be very clear on on your goals in terms of um, spend some time thinking about what are you trying to achieve. And then point two is think about, you know, how are you going to get there and what is the balance of um, assets that are going to get there. And, you know, the, the key there is to have a portfolio that's reasonably well diversified. And if you're talking about investing in stocks, you want to have a, a diversified portfolio of stocks. If you're talking more around investing in different asset classes, you, you still want to be f- sufficiently diversified um, from that standpoint. The third one is have a very strong focus on costs. And, co- and the focus on costs is very important because irrespective of what happens in investment markets. Nobody, whether you're an institutional investor or whether you're a central bank, nobody knows what's going to happen to markets. No one person or entity or a company has control over it. The one thing you can control is how much you pay for investments. You don't want to pay too much for investing and investments because the more you pay, the less that, that money is working for you. So be very conscious and congruent of costs. And if you are paying costs, then just be very clear on the value that you're going to be receiving and how do you then link that back to your goals. And the final one is um, is something that I found uh, quite religiously espoused is to essentially stay the course. Because 
once you are invested, uh, once you have your goals, once you're invested, and, and even if you're invested in low cost, markets move all the time. And I think the key there is to not get too caught up in that noise. And, and once you've defined your goals, the key is to stay the course with that goal and be very clear and not be caught up when markets move up or down and try and you know take any action that might impede that investment strategy not working for you and then impeding your goal. So those four goals, having goals, uh, diversification, watching your costs and uh, investing for the long term or having discipline, I think lead very nicely to this concept of indexing, which has underpinned the massive growth we've seen in ETFs. But I think a lot of people who are new to markets would be surprised that indexing is a relatively new concept. The first index fund was actually made by um, Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, in 1975. So it has only been around for sort of you know less than 50 years. So given that Vanguard has almost been synonymous with the growth of index investing, can you just tell us a bit about what that journey has been and how those four principles have sort of guided the growth of both Vanguard and index investing more generally? Sure. So, as you said, Vanguard was founded in 1975, and Vanguard was first set up. Vanguard was set up first and foremost as a mutual structure, the structure I described earlier. And we, ironically enough, we started off with active funds. Over time, Bogle had always done some research around the 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 value add of active managers. So these are fund managers, professional fund managers who pick securities and seek to achieve returns. And I think there was a lot of research done where which suggested that professional fund managers in most instances were unable to meet just the benchmark that they that was being used to measure their performance. When I talk about a benchmark, it's really you're talking about an ASX, um, S&P 200 or an S&P 300. So these are companies who build indices or indexes which seek to track a representation of what a broad stock market or a bond market is doing. When active managers you know, buy and sell stocks and seek to generate some return, they're usually measured to a standard benchmark. Now, the theory at the time suggested that most active managers couldn't outperform an index. And lo and behold, Jack Bogle created the first index fund to try and not be active, but to create a fund that would essentially just replicate the index. Now, it took a long time for for that concept to take off. There was um, understandably quite a bit of resistance to indexing. I think he was termed un-American. I think he was termed you're actively trying not to win and you're trying to be at the middle of the road. And, you know, there was, there was a number of issues at play there. But over time, what has transpired is this whole concept of indexing and Jack will always believe that if you are offering an indexing strategy then you can offer it at a very low cost and costs are something that matter fundamentally to investment portfolios that concept has gained a lot of traction over the years particularly in the last 10 to 20 years where people have suddenly woken up and realized that hey I've got all these portfolios that are managed by active managers when in fact a simple low cost indexing strategy has you know outperformed for majority of the time. And I say majority, it's about 90% of the time. So we didn't set out to, you know, have the amount of assets that we have today. Vanguard was set up as a mutual structure and this indexing seemed like a good way to offer investors the abilities to, to invest. What has 
happened is that everybody around the world has woken up to this concept and indexing has grown quite phenomenally over the past 40 years where where, where now uh, there's a lot of attention to to indexing and the way these index investments are managed but importantly there's there's also a lot more attention on active managers having to justify how they're different compared to just a standard low frills no cost low cost um index investment. So, Balaji, this question's coming in from a listener and we'll, we'll move into sort of how you determine what ETFs and, and funds to bring to market. They're interested in knowing what are some of the factors that influence the portfolio holdings and perhaps if you could sort of tie that in with how do you determine what is going to be the next ETF or fund that comes to market? Sure. So, in in any index strategy, whether it's a whether it's a fund or an ETF, and we'll talk about what um, what the distinctions are in a, in a minute. So, if you are following an index strategy, the way it works is Vanguard has an approach where we don't self-index, i.e., we don't publish our own portfolio of stocks that we seek to track. So, we usually use an external provider like a Standard and Poor's, S and P, MSCI, or FTSE to create that index. Now, for the most part, there are a number of branded indices like the S&P 500 or the the FTSE 100 or the MSCI or countries. So, these companies create a portfolio of securities that constitute that index. And from a Vanguard standpoint, what we do is we try and match that index, security for security. Say if you're talking about the MSCI portfolio, that's probably got about a few thousand securities. So we would then seek to create a fund and then replicate that um, portfolio with with almost exactly what's in that MSCI or S&P or FTSE index. Now, that is how we determine what the portfolio holdings are. Now, indices by themselves, when MSCI and FTSE and so on, from time to time, they make adjustments to the index. So some companies fall off and some companies, new companies seem to come in. If you look at the S&P 500, for instance, the companies that are there on the S&P 500 now, and if you compare that to, say, 30 years ago, the, the type of companies that are there are completely different. So companies come in and out from indices all the time. So Vanguard will then work very closely to monitor what those movements are and try and replicate the portfolio within the fund to exactly mirror what that index is trying to do. And I say we, we try and do it exactly because sometimes, you know, there could be minor differences slightly over or slightly under, but for the most part, you want it to be very reflective of what's in the underlying index. So to pick up on funds versus ETF, you have two options available for retail investors, and that's your retail funds, which are done sort of off market directly with you guys. And I think it's a minimum of about 5,000 to get started, but then you can sort of be paid drip feed in as, as you need. And then the alternative is to buy your ETFs just through the ASX, through, through your normal brokers. So some of our listeners would like to know, how do your retail funds stack up against or ETFs, and and why would you choose one over the other? That's a good question. And maybe before I uh, I answer that question, I'll just talk about how an ETF is different to a fund, and then talk about how how that um, how that choice is determined by an investor. So, an exchange traded fund is essentially a fund that is listed on a on an exchange. And it offers you the convenience of being able to buy and sell that fund on the exchange 
as you would with any stock like a BHP or a CBA or an ANZ, for instance, just through your ComSec broker. The, the primary difference uh, between a fund and an ETF is that a fund is not listed. A fund is priced once in a day, whereas an ETF is priced throughout the day. So investors can come in and buy an ETF at whatever point in the day. And, you know, the a value of an ETF is very reflective of its underlying net asset value at every point during the day. Now, that said, we'd never recommend that just because an exchange-traded fund can be traded, that it should be traded. Whilst ETFs offer a great way to be able to buy a strategy, we don't recommend trading them frequently as a strategy. And so long as you're investing in the right strategy, it's an ETFs are a, a really good mechanism to be able to invest into that. The choice between a fund and an ETF really comes down to, to an investor. I think some investors have always invested in funds. And, uh, and they will continue to do that. But from uh, from an ETF standpoint, globally, we're seeing a huge take up in the ETFs because it's a really simple way to get access to an investment strategy, particularly a um, an index one, which most ETFs seek to track. It also ETFs also have the added benefit where, by virtue of being on an exchange, it offers you a few additional layers of liquidity that might not be available to a fund. Within a fund context, if people make applications to invest in a fund, what happens from there on is a fund manager takes that money and then goes out and buys the underlying securities within that fund. And conversely, when you're redeeming, that money comes in and you know if there's cash in the fund, that gets paid out to the investor. But if there's not enough cash, then you go, the fund manager goes out and sells those investments. In an ETF, there is an added layer of liquidity just on the stock exchange. We call that the secondary market, where most ETF trading happens between investors on the exchange, where there is no underlying security that's bought or sold. So if I was selling an ETF, I would just follow the same process as if I was selling a stock on the stock exchange. And then say, if you're in the market for buying an ETF, the broker would then match us up. And then that transaction is fulfilled without having, without touching any of the underlying security. So ETFs provided that, provide that added layer of liquidity. So there's, and in addition to that, ETFs also have another mechanism, which we call it, this is getting a little bit complex, but there's a there's what we call a market maker and authorized participants. So these are large investment banks who can come in and create units or redeem units in an ETF to ensure that it's always tracking very close to the underlying net asset value of all the securities that make up that fund. So I think, Balaji, that, that was a good explanation. And I think it's a common question we get. And I think probably the important thing is whether you're buying an ETF or whether you're investing in the retail fund, if they're tracking the same index over the long term, you should be looking at the the same performance. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, perfect. So I guess the, the other question that arises a lot in terms of these ETFs is that, you know, if you have now that there's a whole lot of providers out there and they all track the same index. So we're using the S&P 500 as an example. So let's keep doing that. You know, Vanguard, BetaShares, BlackRock, everyone has an ETF tracking the S&P 500. So for investors out there, what, what are the key things that they should be looking at to differentiate all these funds that essentially track the same index? 
just to add to your question, sometimes, you know, there are the underlying indices like uh, can also be slightly different, but seeking to broadly tr- follow the same type of exposure like an S&P. So you could get that same exposure through another index provider. So a number of providers do this. And I think it's really important to look at once you've determined what is the underlying investment strategy and the index that it's seeking to track, does that meet your goal? And once you've made that determination, it then comes back to really the quality and the strength of the issuer, the quality and the strength of their investment capabilities, their portfolio management capabilities, and their execution capabilities. It's really, really important that just because fundamentally indexing seems like a simple concept and it's offered at a low cost, it is not very simple to run. Unlike an active manager who wants to start a 30 or 50 stock portfolios, that's almost a very straightforward process. Whereas Running an index fund with thousands of securities requires um, very strong teams with a very strong operational and technology infrastructure to be able to pull that off. And that's why the quality of the issuer is very important. Sometimes I think uh, all, all, um, all of your listeners should be looking at what what is the underlying makeup of that index and look at the the cost at which it is trying to be offered at, and and, and also look at the the reputation, the quality, uh, and the track record of providers who run other funds or ETF that seek to track these strategies. Following on from that, we've had a listener ask us to almost give a bit of a, a sell pitch for Vanguard. They started with Raise and now have close to 15K in there, and they're tempted to move to more of an established ETF provider like Vanguard. And their direct question is, do they have a, Do you guys have a strategy to lure them across? Uh, uh, they really just want <laughs> a sweetener here, I think. <laughs> uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, uh, the, the quick answer... <laughs> But the quick and the quick answer is of course yes, and I'll, I'll just take it back to those four principles I outlined earlier around the, the the need to bring it back to goals, the diversification, low cost, and staying the course. Uh, since the late nineties, Vanguard have um, Vanguard's had a, a range of diversified funds. So these are just funds that have either a high growth growth high growth um, growth balanced and conservative options that are listed that were listed as funds we've had we've seen tremendous flows go into them and they've for for the most part been very successful for Vanguard and importantly they've been very successful for for investors because it was a just a, an asset allocation that provides you access to a truly diversified portfolio. Um, at, at a low cost, and um, and it removes all these biases of people buying buying in and selling, you know, buying high and you know selling low and and things like that. What we did recently was take these diversified strategies and offer them as an ETF. So investors who want access to a diversified portfolio, where you're going with. Uh, to these other platforms, and you're trying to buy a portfolio that's made up of underlying ETFs, what we've done is we've created a portfolio that uh, we've created what we call a diversified ETF, which is just offering that entire diversified strategies available in an ETF through a single click purchase. So I think that would be a really good mechanism for many of your listeners to, to try and avail of Vanguard's best invest in investment thinking, but just as an ETF. And, and these products have been really successful for us. But what we're really proud of is the underlying strategy, the asset allocation that makes up these diversified funds, 
they've had top quarter performance for one, three, five, seven, and 10 years for, for a very long time. So, and I think importantly, many, many investors who have invested into these funds at low cost have, have, um, have been incredibly benefited from them, which is um, really pleasing to see. So, Balaji, I'm really interested to move on to uh, sort of industry trends and stuff like that because you, you touched on the number before. Um, Vanguard has eight trillion trillion with a T <laughs> as Australian dollars are under management, and I guess with such a large amount of money under management, you have a really good view of what's happening in the ETF industry, where money's flowing, where it's leaving and stuff like that. So I guess to start local before we get global, how does the Australian ETF investor compare to the rest of the world? Is there anything we do differently or anything we prefer or anything that you're seeing overseas that you expect to come to Australia one day? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's, it's, it's in many ways quite the opposite because one thing that's come out, for, especially from an ETF standpoint, was if you look at ETF adoption and where it began in the US and in, in Europe, institutional investors are very large investment banks and the big banks were the first people to invest in, in, um, in ETFs. In Australia, that trend's been flipped on its head where most of the investments into ETFs here have been led by individual investors, so self-managed super funds and their advisors. And so between uh, direct retail clients and advisors, they've been able to um, see the benefits of investing in ETFs. And if you look at the majority of the $55-odd billion that is the size of the ETF market in Australia, a big chunk of it is made up by advisors and retail investors, which is very pleasing to see because it's not just the adoption of ETFs, but it's also their adoption of low-cost, simple investing. So that that as a trend has, um, has really surprised us. If you then transpose that to Europe, so Europe is Europe predominantly has an institutional usage of ETFs. The US has a good mix of institutional advisor and retail clients. But what we are finding is that a lot of people, whilst they're investing in indexing strategies, we they're, they're actually using them quite actively. So when they build a portfolio, for instance, what they're doing is they're using these underlying indexes or indices as core building blocks to put a portfolio together. And then 
depending on the views that they might have on certain markets, they're either overweighting or underweighting these portfolios. So we, Vanguard did some analysis where to look at how people are using index strategies. And we were quite surprised that most of the passive strategies that are being used by advisors and retail investors predominantly, there is some element of them being used actively. So that's the big trend. We're also seeing a trend towards responsible investing. We're seeing a trend towards factor investing. There's um, there's also going to be a ton of focus on um, retirement income. So for people who've retired and want to um, seek some income, I presume that your listen that that bit might be less relevant to your listener base. But these are broadly some of the trends we're seeing. But you know the the key message there is a very strong trend towards money moving into low-cost index-based investing. Another trend that we're seeing overseas starting to pick up a bit of pace is the brokerage going to zero. You know, Charles Swab have recently announced and I think Fidelity cut theirs online brokerage overnight. And here in Australia, we've got stake as well, allowing investors to access the US market. Do you think we will see at Vanguard, you know, zero brokerage or, or zero fee ETFs? I'll answer the brokerage question first. So Vanguard created this trend of offering zero-cost brokerage in the U.S. And I'll use the U.S. as a proxy because that's where they, that's that's the biggest market for us. So we through our um, through our own brokerage channel uh, through our own product channels there we began this trend of offering zero-cost brokerage, not just for our clients but also for all clients to be able to come in and buy both our ETFs and all ETFs. So I think. If you transpose that into an Australian context, we're constantly thinking about how do we remove barriers for people wanting to invest in ETFs. Now, we are conscious that brokerage is a barrier, but it's not that significant a barrier. But that said, we're, we're thinking about it. And, and over time, along with everything else, we, we might choose to make some improvements in that space. So that's the question on brokerage as it relates to zero-cost ETFs. That's an interesting one. I always question because it does cost money to run funds and ETFs. So if somebody's offering stuff at zero, I think one must always question how are they able to do that? What is their motivation for doing that? And you know, what is the full picture and what is the total cost of what you might be paying? And I think these are some considerations that need to need to go into place as well. There were other examples that I heard where there were um um, zero-cost ETFs, but people had to access them through a platform, and then there was the platform offered you cash accounts, and then the, the platform was then trying to make money through the cash account. So these are various examples. So I'd encourage people to be very cautious of um, going into anything that's zero-cost. Low-cost is good, but zero-cost is, um, you know, be cautious. Now, Balaji, to put you on the spot a little bit here, BetaShares recently released their A200 ETF with a cost base of seven basis points. And I think the Vanguard one, correct me if I'm wrong, is at 10 basis points um, per annum. Is there is there a appetite internally to match or even beat what beta shares have put out? Look, I'll just go back to the, the core tenet of our um, mutual structure, right? Our model has always been build scale and then pass those savings back 
to to customers through lower fees. And we've been able to do that globally, and we we continue to do that in Australia. I think in Australia, um, in our last check, we've 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 done twenty five fee cuts. The way we approach it is, we look at our entire product lineup. And, and try and constantly cut the price of uh, our products once it meets scale and, and other expectations that we, we, we might have of it. We recently dropped the price of our VAS, which is our largest ETF, and it's also the largest ETF in the Australian market, to 10 basis points from 14 basis points. But that's something that was we, we do this on an ongoing basis across our lineup. I, um, I think when... It, it, if you look at and read about things in the media, there's a lot of attention on these price wars. But it's important that Vanguard will Vanguard started this trend, but Vanguard also looks at fee cuts across our entire portfolio, not just for certain products to try and spruik them and try and make them um, bring some flows into them. We, from that standpoint, we constantly look at all our products, and as soon as we they meet our scale requirements, we will continue to cut. So that's part of our strategy every year, year on year. It's a good one. And I guess the prices going down are, are great for investors. And, and to your point earlier, price is important, but it's just one thing when you think about how you differentiate the different ETF providers. So, exactly. you know, competition's great. And as, uh, as the equity mates guys on this side of the, the interview, we, uh, we hope the competition continues because it's, it's good for all investors. Yep. I guess another trend that we're seeing more and more in the industry is more active ETFs. How do you think about uh, investing in active ETFs when Vanguard was, I guess, founded on a principle of long-term index-based investing? Do you expect these active ETFs to continue growing and continue to proliferate, even though they're sort of the antithesis of the index investing ethos? First, to uh, to restate Vanguard's view, Vanguard is all about low cost. And we think indexing is a strategy that is quite sound, and most active managers can't beat an index. But we are of the view that there are still good active managers out there who can continue to generate risk-adjusted returns over the long term. And if you look at Vanguard's assets under management, we are one of the largest allocators of active equity around the world. We have roughly about $2 trillion Australian dollars in invested in active managers where we don't manage the assets, but we do manage some of the internal assets. But there are some um, external managers that we allocated monies to to manage monies actively. So our ethos has always been low cost. And if you're investing in active strategies, then it's got to be very good talent and it's got to come at a reasonably low cost. And, um, and you also need to have patience. With that in mind, we have been watching what's happening in the active ETF domain. So active ETFs are essentially fundamental active managers trying to offer their strategies as ETFs on the stock exchange. So it's essentially offering active managers with the benefits and the convenience of buying it as an ETF. Now, there are slight differences there. The way the regulator um, and the ASX view this is if there's a strategy that is not seeking to exactly replicate an index, then that's con- that's classified as an active ETF. So that's one. So we launched some of our factor strategies recently, which fall into that bucket of active ETFs. But also there is a view that fundamental active strategies where active managers um, need to launch these products. There are a few things to consider there because with ETFs, there is a lot of transparency. So with ETF, for instance, the entire portfolio of securities is published daily for people to view. But if you look at that in an active ETF for an active manager, 
say if someone's running 30 to 50 stocks, then there is a risk that they're putting their IP, their intellectual property out there. And, you know, is there an opportunity for other people to come in and front run it? Now, that is a concern and that is a risk. So there are a number of considerations before being able to offer an active strategy as an ETF, including, you know, how would a, how would a market making process work? So I think ASIC is now viewing uh, how this space is developing. I think globally, there's been some um, talk with some providers having a view on how this should proceed. So there's not too much activity that we've seen in Australia on this, but we are monitoring it very carefully. Balaji, before we move on to some of the risks with ETFs, just want to close out the the industry section. From your point of view, what's next for the ETF industry? Are there any trends that are starting to come to light now that you know we might not perhaps be aware of, or, or what are you seeing from your side? So I, I think, um, pleasingly, there's been a big trend towards low-cost in- investing, and that will continue. Now, in Australia, ETFs have had a phenomenal growth of you know about 30-odd percent year-on-year, but it's still a small proportion of the overall fund market. So the ETF market, as I said, is $52 billion, but the fund market is you know massive compared to that. We think, we think this ETF growth will continue over time, and we would like it to. There's um, there's also been trends of people moving towards lower cost factor based investing. So where people have traditionally invested in active managers, factors are a essentially a, a cheaper way of investing in in a number of the characteristics of how an asset manager might be running a product. Say if you if you want a value factor, you can then invest in just a value factor, which is run very similar to an index strategy, but the fund manager has some discretion in terms of going slightly overweight or underweight. So that's factors are gaining prominence globally. So that's happening. ESG is something that is always coming up in discussion and we should expect to see some expansion in that space. I think Vanguard did something last year in global equities and bonds, and we should see that continue. But especially from an advisor standpoint and how advisors use ETFs, advisors have started using ETFs as core building blocks to build portfolios for their clients. So again, this goes to the point I mentioned earlier around you know using passive index products, but using them in a portfolio actively. So that as a trend is, is also quite significantly growing in all, in all of the regions. So we'll move on to risks and and recently, you know, we started the show, Michael Burry has made some pretty interesting comments. He said the recent flood of money into index funds has parallels with the pre-2008 bubble in collateralized debt obligations that ended up on, you know, going on to destroy the the global financial system. What is what is your view on on his his sort of comments around uh, a bubble forming in in ETFs and and passive markets and is there sort of some truth to it? Yeah, interested to know what your opinions are. Sure, I think um, Michael Burry made some very important observations in the GFC around the around the CDO crisis. So I think if you if you really look at some of the comments he's recently made, I think his comments were along the lines of passive investing or index investing tends to distort the prices of underlying individual stocks. And his view was, you know, there's there's big investments in small stocks, and if everyone were to sell down assets. At the same time, then the exit door is small. And then the final thing he said was there are some complex bits um, within some index funds where people use derivatives that can break and under stress and cause some money losses. Now, 
in before I talk about a counter view to what Michael Burry suggested, I will talk about one area where I agree with him. Where if you are the point he made around um, the use of options and and other derivatives in in funds, the excessive use of them in funds and ETFs. That's always going to come with some added risk. Now, when I talk about ETFs, I, I do want to mention that Vanguard and, and you know most other providers in in um, in Australia use asset backed ETFs. So when when money goes into ETFs, so most of that is direct exposure. So the so someone's always buying the underlying stock. There's the opposite of that, which is called a synthetic ETF, where people use derivatives to try and get exposure to big chunks of the market. So like gold and other things are, are an example. Now, they come with added risks. And, and the point that Michael Burry said that you know excessive use of options and derivatives, and especially by people who don't understand how to use them or the risks within, that could be an issue. Now, we don't have that vanguard for the most for strategies by the underlying stocks and securities. And also, we have a protection mechanism in Australia where if there are derivatives being used within, a, within an ETF um, to the tune of greater than 5% of the portfolio, it needs to be listed as a synthetic. So none of our funds are listed as that. So that's point one. In terms of price distortion of the underlying individual stocks, it's worthwhile just lifting the bonnet and truly understanding what causes price movements for individual stocks. Assets under management flowing into strategies does not cause that. Predominant influencer in terms of what causes price to, prices to move is the trading. So when people buy and sell, and that's really what determines price movements. If you look at all of the indexing strategies globally, it accounts for less than 5% of the trading of the underlying stock. So on that basis, we don't, and, and indexing strategies are still only a small proportion of the overall indexing universe. So we don't think that argument is, is valid just on that basis because indexing strategies alone don't cause these price distortions to happen. There was also the argument that if these distortions happen to happen, then that would offer active managers a great way if, if they see something as overvalued to sell them down or if something's undervalued to come in and, and buy them. So we don't think that argument is valid. His other argument was if every investor tried to get out of some stocks and head out for the door, then that might cause a mass panic situation with having too many sellers. Ironically, indexing invest indexing doesn't buy and sell stocks too often, and that's why that's one of the reasons why it has great tax efficiency. The predominant amount of buys and sells are driven by the active managers, so so we don't think there's scope in that as well. So hopefully that answers your question. Nice. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation today, Balaji. Thank you so much for joining us and and taking the time to share all of your your thoughts and wisdom around ETFs and also what Vanguard can provide for investors. As we said at the start, bigger focus for some of our, our listeners. So I hope they got as much out of it as we did. And also, if anyone would like to come and see Balaji and, and ourselves live in action. Uh, we do have a live show coming up 23rd of October in, in Melbourne. So we're very excited for that. It's going to be a great evening of all things ETF and markets in 2019. So Balaji, thanks for your time today. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates.